this morning with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the seats in front of you if you want to follow along. We're only on page 2, it should be easy to find. I want to give you a very short summary of where we are leading up to where we're going to pick up this morning. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In chapter 2, verse 7 says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. I fast forward to verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. We just went through two chapters of the Bible. Aren't you impressed how fast pastors can go sometimes? That's the shorthand creation account. This morning I want us to pick up with verse 25, the very end of the chapter. In the original text, there were no verse numbers, there were no chapter endings. I believe verse 25 ought to really go with the story from chapter 3. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The first thing we see here is that this newly created man and woman, they were naked, but they were not ashamed. They were unashamed. Everyone say, unashamed. unashamed. I'm going to say something here that is of utmost importance because the rest of the teaching this morning hinges on you understanding this concept. We were not created by God with the capacity and ability to feel shame. Adam and Eve were naked and unable to be shamed. Here's where I'm going with this. Shame is not of God. Some of you might need to turn to your neighbors and turn to your left and right and tell them, shame is not from God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You shall Surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. Here's the knowledge. 
They were naked and unashamed. Now they eat the fruit. And look at that word new. They have come to know something that they did not perceive before. They had a capacity to understand something. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What's the first indication that change has occurred? That they do, in fact, understand the difference between good and evil. Well, they were no longer comfortable in their own skin. To steal a metaphor. What was the first thing they did? They made clothes from leaves. And then what did they do? They followed it up with hiding. They what? Hid from the presence of God. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. It's God's personal name. They hid. They tried to hide from him. Understand that what they were doing was trying to escape from the very presence of Elohim Yahweh. They were trying to get away because they understood now something. What we experienced and had before we ate of the fruit, we can no longer be around. That holiness, it's something reserved with our experience and relationship with God. We can no longer connect with Him on that intimate way. Their eyes had been opened. They tried to hide anyway, even though you can't hide from God, can you? Fun fact about God. I'm such a nice guy, I'm not even going to charge you for this one. God already knows where all of your good hiding spots are. He never has lost a game of hide-and-seek. Just imagine God coming down to his creation. Adam, what are you wearing? Well, they're clothes, God. Clothes? What are clothes? Is that one of your inventions? I'm sorry, Adam. Did you not like the way that I made you? He who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning. I want you to get this truth down into your spirit. Anytime we add something to what God has done or we sort of rework his plan and we, anytime we try to improve the system that God has put in place, all that we really do is subtract from his handiwork. God made him perfect. He looked over creation. He said, behold, it is very good. Oh, maybe this serpent's right. Maybe we're missing out on something. And what did it do? The image and glory of God by which God created man and woman had to now be covered. Let that sink in. The clothes that we wear, and I'm thankful you're wearing clothes. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying this morning. Okay? Pastor's got a screw loose. (laughs) No, I do not. We are sin-filled people, we need clothes, but we used to not. It's a covering of what God intended to be good, and in fact was perfect and holy in his very image. He didn't design us to be clothed. Clothing really is the symbol of our shame.
God created us naked, and we would have been better off to stay that way. There was nothing wrong with nakedness in the beginning. But you know, we're really no different than Adam. We like to think, oh, if Adam didn't disobey, if he didn't corrupt everything, if he didn't ruin everything for all of us, we wouldn't be in all this mess, would be. Oh, we're not different. You ever heard a voice from God say, Eric, I want you to do this. I want you to trust me. I want you to allow me to provide for you. I want you to lean into the system that I have set up for you. They had every tree in the garden except one. God set up a system of provision that they would trust in him and he would provide for all of their needs. And what do we do over and over again? We eat of that fruit that we too shouldn't be touching. We shouldn't even be looking at it. I'm not talking about literal fruit, and I'm not talking about literal nakedness. I'm talking about the way that we ignore God's voice. I'm talking about all the great plans and things that He has for our lives. But instead, we sort of kick and scream and rebel, don't we? Oh, God, I think I should do it this way. Maybe you want to maintain a little bit of control in your life. When in reality, all that you're saying is, God, I don't like the way that you've made me. I'm going to cover myself with fig leaves. all the things that he's told us not to do, not to say, not to touch. We just got to try it for ourselves, don't we? And what inevitably happens is that we end up having to cover up God's design because of the sinfulness of our selfish hearts. You know, God always meant us to be naked. There was nothing shameful about it until the depravity of the heart was revealed. Oh, that we would embrace ourselves the way that God has made us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What you feel about yourself, the things that you would want to change, that feeling of shame and insecurity does not come from him. Behold, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Why is it that we always want to, God, you know, when I get my new body, could you just take a few inches off the waist? Now, some of you might need to be a little more self-controlled, there's definitely a piece to that puzzle. But you understand what I'm saying. I'm a man who started thinning and was bald enough to shave my head in his 20s. God, you mind giving me a little bit of hair when I get to heaven? Let's not be so presumptuous to assume that we know better than God. We always try to improve our knowledge, our understanding, our image. In reality, all we ever accomplish is destroying his very intentions. So Adam and Eve, they eat of this fruit, and they find out about sin in a humiliating way, don't they? You're, ever, as a kid, do you ever remember losing your drawers? I did. I remember at the beach one time. I, I was old enough to remember this. Let me tell you, I was not a toddler. And I was a little short on swim trunks, down at the beach one day, and we used to do this body surfing with Dad. You know, you catch the wave just right on your bellies, not with a boogie board, that's cheating. You can ride it all the way in, you know, into where the shallow and you're scraped all up on the sand. There's nothing more exciting and exhilarating than riding a wave, you know, 20, 30 yards and scraping your belly up. Well, 
you know, after day two or three, when your swim shorts are all still wet, you go down to the bottom of the basket, and what do you find? You find your swim shorts that you don't really like that don't have any elastic them anymore. <laughs> and I will never forget the moments that I discovered those were no longer allowed to be used for swimming. As a wave came, and boy, I rode that sucker good into the shallows, and guess what? There were no shorts on me. You try to slither back into the water. Where are they, Lord? Help me. Just imagine how Adam and Eve felt. These weren't children. They had never noticed each other in that way before. And the moment they ate of it, their eyes were opened up, and the first thing that they felt was this. Number one, ashamed. Now, I can't imagine how bizarre that would be just to instantly notice things about each other that, you know, were there all along. And this, this, this might not be as pleasant. It wasn't as pleasant as you, some of you think it might be. How do I know? Why? Because their first reaction was to make clothes and hide. They knew something was off. They knew something was wrong. What they were feeling, in fact, I would argue was shame. Listen, shame has no place in the life of a child of God. It was not introduced by God. It is a result of sin. It is a result of disobedience. King David. King David was a powerful king who abused his power to sleep with another man's wife. But not so long after he had done that act, he received word that that woman had become pregnant with her husband while her husband was off fighting the king's war. So what did he do? Well, what any good political leader would do. They tried to cover it up. He calls a man home and tries to get him to be with his wife so that he could cover up the whole thing. Well, that soldier showed more integrity and self-control than even the king did and would not go into his wife. He said, I better cover this up with a murder. So David not doubled down, but tripled down, and he had the front lines pulled back as the man lost his life. There was a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. For that duration, she was both physically and ceremonially unclean, uncomfortable, uncomforted. You see, in the society then, she would not be allowed into the temple, the courts, because she was bleeding. She was not able to worship her God. But after witnessing Jesus heal some others, she reached out, filled with hope, to touch the hem of his cloak. Why? Because how could she ask for his healing in front of a whole crowd of people? This was a personal matter. It was private. So she figured she, if she just touched the tips of his robe, perhaps that he wouldn't notice. Do you understand? Shame convinces us to hide in the wrong places, to try and cover up our sin with more sin. Shame convinces us to hide so that, that even we would be afraid of letting God fully work and do His work in us the, the way that He desires. I'll just do it my way. I don't want to bring attention to what God's doing in my life. If there's too much of a transformation, everyone's going to notice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Like David, we too try to cover up our sins by committing even more egregious sins. 
We, like the bleeding woman, hide among the crowds so we can conceal our hurt and our pain. We are no different than Adam, freshly aware of our shame, lonely, sinful, and afraid. We hide in the privacy of our homes. We bury ourselves in computer and phones and television and our work and our activities of cleaning and cooking and hobbies and recreation. We hide behind fashion and our education. We hide behind our careers and behind our wealth. We hide behind Facebook feeds and Twitter likes. We hide behind depression and anxiety and worry. We hide our tears. We hide our joy. We hide our shame. We are no different than Adam trying to cover the reality of how we feel inside instead of giving our shame over to God. You see, shame declares that you're guilty. It accuses you of sin. Shame says that you haven't done enough, that you're not enough. Shame discloses your mistakes. It announces it and reminds you of all your failures. Shame announces, here's a sinner, but there is hope. There's a healer who has been sent, and his name is Jesus. After King David confessed his sin and repented, trusting in God's forgiveness, his guilt and shame was taken away. And that's what happened also to the hemorrhaging woman. She tried to hide, but Jesus said, who touched me? He knew exactly who had touched her. He looks for the crowd, trying to figure out who it was, to look at her eyes, and he made an example out of her so that his grace could be on display that day. She had already been healed. He felt the power leave. Why do this, Jesus? Why single me out? My work is not done. Instead of just receiving a physical touch, Jesus wanted to give her an emotional and spiritual touch also. How many times we come and we say, God, well, I only want this. We expect a certain you know, gift. It's wrapped up a certain way. And we say, well, God, I really don't want you to do anything else with me. What, what kind of attitude is that? He wants to do a complete work in you. He wants to set you free and put his grace and his healing on display. And he'll do the same thing for you when you trust in him for righteousness. The shame that you feel will lose its grip on you. It will lose its power over you. Oh, beloved, shame's a tool of the devil to get you trapped in a world of self-condemnation. But the child of God is reminded in the, in the word of God that there is there now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we can be brought into right relationship with him. We don't have to live with shame or condemnation anymore. We never have to hide. We only need to confess and believe Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We no longer have to be identified by that sin. We no longer have to be known by that scarlet letter on our chest. Let's continue because there's more that I want to get to. Chapter 3, verse 9. And the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. 
And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The second thing that we see the newly fallen man and woman do, the second indication that change has actually occurred in their life. You see, they were created naked and unashamed, but as soon as they ate of the fruit, which they were forbidden to eat of, number one, they felt shame. Number two, they blamed. Adam, what have you done? I didn't do nothing. But that woman you gave me, Adam, I didn't ask what you did. Why would you bring me into this, Adam? That serpent over there, he tricked me. That's my best Eve voice this morning. I think it changed from earlier. She got a little higher. I want you to get this. Even as shame entered into the world through sin, blame entered through shame. Adam and Eve, full of sin, immediately had this propensity to blame each other. When we lack confidence, when we feel shame, oftentimes we look for someone else or something else on which we can share some culpability. In other words, the blame game is a byproduct of our wrong think. When you look at yourself in the wrong light, when you feel shame, when you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, that shouldn't be like that, your tendency is to point the finger at other people, not to take responsibility for your own actions. I'm going to make this personal this morning. But I want to remind you that before I do, I'm not trying to pick on anyone here. I love you all. The truth is, I'm talking to you. Yes, all of you. When I preach and deliver a message, I do it with the church as a whole on my mind. This may feel more personally tailored because it is. I know what some here this morning are working through. I want each of you to hear what I have to say because there's a real danger here. There is no good that comes out of blaming others for someone's death. It might feel for good for a moment. It might feel like it's the natural thing, but again, remember that that blame condition is because of sin. We were not created with the capacity to blame each other. We weren't created with the capacity to even feel shame. Remember, it's a result of sin. It started with sin. That flame is fanned by the devil. And he uses it to steal, kill, and destroy you if possible. Don't even go down that road. Oh, if this person had done this, if so-and-so hadn't done that, don't even go there. Do not give the devil an opportunity to, to destroy more lives. That's the exact place he wants you to be. Angry, resentful, bitter. What are those? 
They're all tools of the devil. Listen, there is no room in the life of a Christ follower to be blaming others or to be blaming yourself. That's a foreign concept to the child of God. We were not created for shame, and neither were we created to blame. Sure, if we're being honest, sometimes it feels nice to blame others. It takes responsibility off of our laps, right? I was at a coffee shop this week, and I was discussing how I feel sometimes this pressure to clean the house before my parents come. I remember as a child, when company came over, guess what it was like for a few hours before they arrived? A little hectic. And I said, well, I said to my friend, I said, I guess I get it from my mom. And it's not that we lived perfectly, it was just that it was stressful, and I remember that, and I feel this pressure before they come now to do the same thing. Even though I grew up in a cluttered home, it's like, God forbid, they see my house cluttered. It doesn't even make sense. But do you see what I do there? I blame my mother for me being the way that I am today. I know none of you would ever do that, right? Well, I come by it honestly. <laughs> the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. There's power of life and death in the tongue. Amen? Oh, it's a generational curse. A what now? You're telling me that your hoarding habits are related to your DNA? You mean to tell me that someone else forces you against your will to continue on in your addiction? To not exercise, to keep on eating, smoking, drinking, pornography, whatever it is? How long after sin entered the world was it before man started making excuses for his behavior? As far as I could tell, it was the same day. The practice of self-justification in defense of our actions, in defense of our sin, happened immediately after Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And by attempting to dodge responsibility, by claiming that circumstances made them sin, that woman, that serpent, you know what they did? They compounded their sin by lying. Listen, Satan cannot force anyone to sin. He can't make anyone to sin. Nobody can make anyone to sin. Whatever predicament you face or condition you have can be overcome through Christ Jesus. There is no such thing as a generational curse for a child of God. You got to get that speech, that lingo off your brain. Break it. Bind it up in the name of Jesus. I am a chosen one. I am delivered. He has set me free. He has delivered me out of the darkness into his marvelous light. I will not stand for that generational curse any longer. Not cancer, not addiction, not adultery, none of it. It's not welcome in the life of a Christ follower. Don't blame others for the way that you are, the things that have happened to you. And don't blame God either. But don't miss the lesson here. Justification of our sin tends to blind us to God's goodness and His gifts. Adam blames God, essentially saying, if you hadn't given me this woman, whom I'll remind you, that helpmate who was there to complete him, because creation was just good before she was there, if you hadn't given me that good gift, 
I wouldn't have done this. The very woman that God had made for him to be companion for him was now being blamed for his failure. Don't turn to God. Don't, don't look at God's gifts as wrong. Don't look at God as absent or try to put blame on him. You know, Eve too capitalized on this blame game. If you hadn't allowed this serpent to come in the garden and deceive me, it's not my fault. I tried to tell him we weren't allowed to eat. Oh, how fast. Catch this. The attitudes of our sin affect those around us. God went to Adam and said, Adam, what have you done? That woman. Oh, I like that. <laughs> that snake. She put herself right into his shoes and followed after his leadership. You, as a child of God, have the opportunity to influence those around you by the way that you think, by the way that you talk, by the way that you act. Oh, how fast our attitudes and sin affect those around us if we're not careful. I know that none of you have ever blamed your genetics for the shape that your body's in. Sometimes we blame the neighborhood that we grew up in or our parents for failing to teach us or being absent. Maybe you had an abusive father, an alcoholic mother, and you keep that excuse close to your lips. Some of those circumstances may be true, but they do not make us to sin. The fruit of sin is always the same regardless of the excuse that we make before God. pretty good. Maybe I should write that down. <laughs> the fruit of sin is always the same regardless of the excuses made before God. I'd like to address the elephant in the room. There's another area of blame that I haven't said much about yet. What is it? When we blame ourselves, could I have done more? What if I had called them? What if I had given them more? What if I prayed more? I'm going to say it again. Blame is a result of sin. Blame is a byproduct of sin. It doesn't go like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, blame. It's not a product of the Holy Spirit's. What's your gifting in church? Oh, for sure blame. God has gifted me with blaming others. That doesn't make sense, does it? And so, if to blame others is never godly, or to receive blame from others is never right, you know, you extend grace to yourself, right? If someone comes and accuses you of something, you say, no, I'm not, I'm not receiving that. I am not responsible for that. You give yourself grace. But why is it that we cannot extend ourselves the same level of grace? Shame isn't from God. Blame isn't from God. But do you know what it is? Your name. Ashamed, blamed, denamed. Quickly, I want to end with the blessing. In Christ Jesus, you are named. Isaiah 43, 1 says, But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, 
For I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Isaiah 45, 4. I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. No matter what you've done, no matter what has happened to you or what you are facing, I want to remind you this morning that God knows your name. He has taken sincere interest in you. And when you inherit salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, God takes your shame and He takes all that blame that you put on yourself, all that guilt and that condemnation, and He calls you by His name. Allow that to sink in. Seven billion people on this earth and all those that have gone before us, and He knows you by name. He knows you personally. It's like this parable parable of the prodigal son we read about in Sunday school this morning. When he returns home, father doesn't beat him over the head, give him 39 lashes, rake him over the coals. What does he do? He starts grilling the steaks. He gets out the signet ring, puts it on him. What's the ring a symbol of in his robe? The family name. He says, I am going to restore you to the proper place in this household. That name that I have given you through the name of my son, Jesus Christ, you will wear proudly. You will hold it up and you will walk under all of the authority of that name. There is no shame in God's presence. There is no blame being thrown around. When you are in Christ, neither of those things are welcome or exist. So get them up off you. How many of you know that the Father, and, I, and I'm not saying know the verse, but you know that the Father rejoices over you with singing. Mm. We are so good at piling on that condemnation and that guilt that shame and that blame, but God is just rejoicing over you with singing. Oh, Lord, give us ears to hear that voice. I bet God's got a good voice, doesn't he? Perfect pitch. Mm. Many who are sincere Christ followers are paralyzed by shame in their relationship with God. But a life of shame leads to a life of sin. Consider this. When we feel dirty before God, we're going to live dirty. What happens about with a child if a parent only tears them down all the time? Tells them they can't do anything right. Speaks down in all their behavior. That child has no value. They don't know what it feels like to be loved. That in turn leads them into shame. And what kind of actions would you expect from a child that's full of shame and doesn't understand the good that they are capable of? Well, in the same way, the battle for our faith is waged in understanding what the Father is thinking about and feeling about when we stumble. He's not there to speak shame and blame and guilt and condemnation over you. He's there like a little toddler learning how to walk for the first time. He doesn't spank you because you fell over. He picks you back up. He snuggles you. He gives you a kiss and says, try again, buddy. I'm rooting for you. 
Many who are sincere Christ followers are paralyzed with guilt. They feel that they've done something wrong or they haven't done enough right. Listen, each of you have got to stop trying to earn God's love. You have got to extend grace to yourself in the same way that He has already extended it to you. You can't go around blaming others for the things that have happened to you or your loved ones. He knows your pain and He sees your struggle and He's waiting and wanting you to make the first move. He's willing and He's ready to take each and every burden and care that, you've laid, that you want and are willing to lay down at His feet. Oh, beloved, there is freedom at the foot of the cross. You don't have to be broken any longer. You don't have to suffer from a damaged and hurt heart. He died to heal that pain that you experience. But He promises to give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness, that you may be called or named trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. From blamed and ashamed to named. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Let's close out with a prayer. Father God, I thank you that you love us. You rejoice over us with singing. I pray that each and every person here would feel the love of your embrace. But I speak to those that feel shame and embarrassment, guilt or condemnation. Lord, that they would experience your freedom, your grace, your love and mercy. Lord, for the times that we try to blame others for what has happened in our lives or we try to blame ourselves, Lord, I pray that instead of doing that, we would ask you to see the good that is going to occur. Lord, we pray for those that are struggling this day, for the loss of a loved one, that you would lift them up, comfort them, give them strength in the days to come. Lord, I thank you that in the name of your Son, we don't have to experience pain and shame and guilt. May we lay it down at the foot of the cross this morning and receive your freedom and be lifted up as your child that has been given a new name. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.